0: The people that are best in the world kind of find the thing they love early and just do it forever that is the exception not the rule most of the people who are at the top of their game actually did a bunch of different things until they found their thing and then when they found their thing it was how they actually combined what they had learned in different disciplines to bring that unique approach to what they did Jonathan Neiman
1: is the co-founder and CEO of Sweetgreen, a farm-to-table restaurant chain making fast food healthy. Unless you're one of our American listeners, you probably won't be familiar with Sweetgreen, but they are a staple of the LA, New York, and Washington food scenes. They've got over 200 sites across the country, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them in the UK one day soon. Their menu consists of salads that rotate based on factors like location, the season, and general availability of ingredients. You probably don't think of salad and technology in the same sentence, but Sweetgreen love a bit of tech. Before Covid, half their food orders, half, were taken by the app, which was market leading. But then, of course, the rest of the market was forced to catch up by the pandemic, which eroded their strategic advantage. They've run pilots to test the viability of blockchain technology to track and trace their ingredients and stock. And, having acquired a robotics startup in 2021, They're now creating an automated restaurant where robots will prepare ingredients which are then assembled by human chefs. Pretty wild. It's clear where Jonathan gets his curiosity from. He was surrounded by entrepreneurship as a child of parents who fled persecution.
0: My parents immigrated to the United States in around 1979 from Iran. So they were Persian Jews that had to leave pretty much overnight from their homes due to religious persecution. And so I was very lucky. I was born here in 1984 in Los Angeles. You know, a whole community of people kind of moved over here and had to restart life. Being an immigrant to the United States, watching my parents and this whole community kind of rebuild their lives. And I think that had a lot to do with my entrepreneurial itch as well as is, is watching my dad and, you know, His brothers and really the whole community kind of come here and not a lot of them had jobs. Everyone was in some way a small business owner in some, you know, in in some capacity. And that was always ingrained with me, in me, is starting a business, creating something out of nothing and the value of hard work and hustle. I feel very grateful, actually. Very beautiful childhood. Not a lot of traumas. You know, I have a big, huge family. I'm I'm the oldest of four boys. All my brothers are actually also entrepreneurs, and that way we're all very close. I spent, uh, you know, went to to public school here and was always had that, again, that entrepreneurial itch across, you know, every part of life. And then I ended up, when I was uh, 18, I went to school in Washington, D.C.,
1: Okay, lots of lots of comparisons. Uh, not not a Persian Jew, but can relate to a lot of what you've just said because my family business was indeed schmutter trade. Ah, oh, very nice.
0: <laughs> what
1: is the um, the dynamic, the psychological dynamic with having parents who came over to a country or certainly you know grew up with less? It's impossible to have someone tell you how you're meant to be feeling and necessarily actually feel it, right? Because, you know, in my experience, certainly I was growing up middle class and my parents kept trying to make me understand how lucky I was. But I was a child. So taking everything for granted and not spending enough enough time gratitude is only really since I hit my mid 20s to early 30s and making my own money, my own way in the world. Do I really start to reflect and understand how much privilege that was compared to what my parents grew up with? So, yeah, I'm just wondering how you related to that growing up.
0: You know, I think there was the stories were always that we used to be upper class. We came here and we lost everything. And now, you know, the, how fleeting things can be. So one, just understanding that that money comes, money goes, and life can change really, really quickly.
1: The actual Persian parable, this too shall pass.
0: Yeah, this too shall pass. And there were just the importance of education and the value of education, the value of community. It like was really ingrained in me. So so there was always that like immigrant, like hustle mindset, taught how to negotiate at a very young age, like almost like, you know, I think we did grow up middle class, but I think it was almost ingrained in us that it was, we we had less than that, than we actually did. And, you know, looking back after, like we we lived a very, you know, charmed life, but from where it came from, it was less than what they were used to and had, Mm -hmm. because they had to start over, I think it was a different mindset coming and being an immigrant and, and being different than others. I remember from a very early age, there was always me wanting to almost like prove myself, you know, being the kid that was different. You know, it was me, I think that led me to always try to like overachieve at a very young age. And I think I, I actually didn't realize that until much recently, that that was such a big part of my personality um, mm. I think because, of, because of my upbringing.
1: Also interesting, um, if I may ask, but, you know, growing up in America... Um, interesting attitude towards immigrants so does the UK I'm not preaching I'm just saying reflecting Arabic and um anti-semitism combined did you did you ever did you ever find that one worse than the other or just were you othered in general
0: our community was there was a lot of Jews so I didn't feel anti-semitism until much older because it was it was it was a heavily Jewish population where we grew up but the anti-Persians were viewed as, like, Arabic. You know, that, there was a lot of anti-Semitism towards that in the, you know, 80s and 90s. I think even today, I mean, it, just until recently, I think the brand around Persians has almost changed. Finally, as they've become more successful, and I think the culture of old Persia has been, has been rediscovered by so many people, mm. that now it's like, you know, it, you know, even Persian food is having this, like, renaissance and i have my non persian friends that like really like look at that culture with admiration but for so long i remember almost being like ashamed for me it was to be clear it was like i had to like intentionally assimilate very clearly wanted to prove that i could have non persian friends and i was normal kid like everyone else and you wanted to be you know just a white kid. Part of that was great because I, you know, it you know, I've know a lot of kids in my community that only stayed in the community and only had Persian friends and for me it was, you know, I had the I had that community but I also forced myself to get out and meet people from all around the world. And I, I think that helped give me kind of like a broader worldview that, that I still maintain today.
1: What you were reflecting on, uh, you know, your parents' entrepreneurial nature, that you can't just get jobs, so you create your own jobs. You know, that's sort of like the culture that that you've been brought up with. But you're the first to go to university. You are the first to finish school. You are technically the first, essentially, the first child in your family to finish childhood and start adulting and therefore taking on the responsibility of what it means for your family to be, a Persian Jewish immigrant in this country representing the name. So I'm curious, like, did you ever feel that as that part of your identity?
0: Absolutely. You know, not only was I the oldest in my family, but in the broad, with all my cousins, I was also... It was the oldest boy and one of the, you know, one of the oldest cousins out of 20 of us. So I definitely felt, you know, from a very early stage, I think a lot of my like natural leadership came from that position in my birth order in, in my general family. My mom, you know, I, I give it to my parents. They were just, they were amazing in, in, our, in our upbringing, really helping us, um, letting us be ourselves and finding our own passions and seeing us who we were for who we were and promoting the strengths in the strengths in each of us that are obviously different and really like actually looking for what was best for us and so for me it was my mom really obviously you know had a little bit of that tiger mom mentality trying to you know make sure that we prioritize education and learning and and personal growth but it wasn't one of those I've heard this have you heard this term like the snowplow
1: oh no no go on i've heard tiger mom but not snowplow.
0: Okay, so there's the helicopter mom, which is like kind of like always hovering. The snowplow is the parent that wants to snowplow all of the challenges in front of you so that you never actually feel those challenges, you know, you never Mm. experience those struggles and pains. And so you just kind of go through life like in this kind of like smooth way. I think my, my parents did a really good job of giving us everything we needed, but also letting us feel challenges, you know, letting us fail, letting us actually like go through life's challenges and feel those things. And, you know, as a, as a new, you know relatively new parent now, I think it provided a really good example of, of, how, of how to lead. Leadership and being a parent, there's a lot of similarities, right? Mm-hmm. And you just can't tell people what to do. You got to get them to want to do something intrinsically. And I think my parents did a good job of that, you know, even with when I wanted to start my business, I think my parents thought I was crazy when we were in, when I was looking to start a restaurant company while I was graduating from Georgetown. But their old thing was like, okay, so you do it and you'll probably fail and you'll learn something from it. And then that that, val- that lesson alone will be super valuable. And I think that was a constant theme of like letting us go try things, letting us fail on our own and getting ourselves back up on our feet.
1: I cannot wait, by the way, to find out the stories of you trying to force feed your your kids vegetables and salads. It's going to be a thing of beauty. <laughs> and if that doesn't make sense to anyone listening, yeah, it's about to. I had a really nice upbringing. Fortunately, I believe that my daughter will have, you know, in theory, an even nicer upbringing. How do you get that right? Because somehow I ended up as a person being very ambitious and hungry. So how do I make sure that I create the right environment for my daughter? Not just so she doesn't grow up a little annoying brat that everyone hates because she's spoiled, but actually, more importantly, so she's hungry. These are actually things, even though she's 20 months old, that I, I think of almost every day. I'd love to know how you're thinking about those things before we get onto the meaty conversation.
0: I also think about this almost every day. Um, it's it's a very big topic in my household as well because my my wife is also Persian Jew and we had a very similar upbringing and I think in a lot of ways you know it's, it's very similar to what you said. Whereas we had, they, we had everything we wanted, but it wasn't unlimited. I, you know, a lot of the in a lot of ways that 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 constraint that we had, which was real, do we have to now create an unnatural constraint? To create that hunger for them and how do we do that and how do you create humble kids that are curious and really appreciative of things and just quite honestly, you're like you said, hungry and not spoiled brats and people that can actually like really enjoy the, the, the true joys of life. So I think a lot about this and I think that it's going to be in some ways our, my biggest parenting challenge is is how to do that. The simplest way I've been able to solve this might... So I have two kids. I have a two and a half year old and, and I have a four, uh, four months today, uh, baby girl. So I have a boy and, and then a girl. Because I think nature is the great equalizer where it's accessible to everyone. And for me, is like the happiest place you can be. And you're in California. And I'm in California. So it's like I really try to focus on those things. So finding not joy for going to these things that may cost money, but like instilling joy in... Just going on a nature walk and going hiking, just going to the beach and playing in the sand. And I think like finding that that joy or or the other thing has been like listening to music and finding a deep love for like listening to music. But I think there's other things that you got to do. And I think that those things are going to get harder as we get older. Right. I think I'm in the easy stage today. So I think things about decisions about what schools do you go, you know, get your whole education on YouTube today. So when I'm thinking about schools, I'm thinking more about the community and the people and the social exposure that I want my kids having, less so about the fancy school with the fancy teachers. I think there is a lot about the value of work. And, you know, I think a lot of parents are scared to teach their kids about money at a young age. I, I, you know, my my kid already, you know, my two-year-old knows that you know, he, I have brought him to work with me. I take him to school every morning, and he knows that every morning I get up and I go to work every single day, and that's what we do. And there's a value in work, and that it's not, that it's. I look forward to it. You know, he's like, "Daddy, what are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm going to work because it's fun and it's my purpose." And instilling that the joy of work in building, I think, is 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 another piece of it. And I think that's another thing my parents did well is as long, as long as I remember, I I had to have a job. I had to learn what what it meant to make a dollar and how hard it was to make a dollar. So I wanted to like, when I saw the price, when I wanted to buy something, I was like, oh my God, that thing's $5. It's like, wait, do you know how hard it is to make $5? Five hours? You know, like, yeah, it's like, (laughs) that. that's what it takes. It's not these things that just don't show up.
1: I had a really interesting conversation um, on our last interview with the founder of Waze. Uh, we were talking about um, AI and technology and the education system. So what he's really interested in. For him, the idea of education in the next 10 years is, you know, there's no point teaching most of the things I'll be teaching in school because it's kind of a pointless thing to learn if a computer can do it for you. So like, therefore, what do you learn in school? Like what is important is learning how to be kind, learning, learning how to be generous in a community, learning how to be a real human, how to cook, like all of these things that were thought of previously as whatever, those are wishy-washy, artsy things that don't matter. These are actually some of the important things that can bring human beings together. He was really focused on like sort of the, um, going back to like EQ and emotional intelligence being taught in school and, and really diving deep in that because a lot of these academic things just don't matter. And I thought that was really, really profound.
0: I totally agree with that. You know, I think, you know, you see what AI is doing and it's going it's to it's gonna change the world very quickly. Don't and he? I already see how, how my son interacts with technology. Like We don't let him use screens, but the way he knows how to talk to Alexa, it's like crazy. Like he's got this Alexa in his room and he, he knows how mm. to use that thing totally natively. For me, it's really about creating a joy for learning, that curiosity, learning how to learn.
1: Yeah, meta learning. It's the way.
0: Yeah. And so there's that. And then I think there is, it's everything you said is the EQ. It's learning about compassion and gratitude and just that, you know, being connected to your feelings, I think is going to be so much more important because I do believe the most successful people, the creativity is going to be more valuable in the future than ever. I think truly like original thought and creativity is going to be so valuable. And so is leadership and leadership is all about relationships. It's about building trust and building followership. And and I think that those are the things that are going to be most valued, not these super specific technical skills.
1: If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC2. You're gonna need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. Um. So you mentioned you went to Georgetown University in Washington, which I know well because one of my best friends from school went there as well. Tell me, tell me how you started Sweet Green. Then, like, why why would going to university there encourage you to start a business like this?
0: Sweet Green started in the idea was formed in 2006. So I was a senior at school. I had just gotten back from from a year abroad in Australia. It really started with this problem in our own life where myself and my co-founders were sitting around discussing we're all and we all had a similar Similar story with our parents all being immigrants um, to this country and all be, all being entrepreneurs. And so all were friends that talked about business and wanted to start something. And we we're talking about this problem that was just so obvious in our lives. We're like, we cannot believe that we can't find a place to eat that is delicious, but also healthy and also convenient.
1: Because it's America is the answer. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, it is America. And it was honestly sad. It's like our greatest export is McDonald's. Think about that, Coca-Cola and McDonald's, like that's what that's the food we serve? How is that possible? And you looked at other verticals, you know, whether it be like fat you know, if you look at that Nike and Disney, and it's like, wow, these are incredible brands that tell great stories and have great products. And in our food space, we're just making people sick. And so the idea started just in in our own life. Why don't we just open one tiny restaurant as a little project we knew nothing about food but we you know we, we love food we love you know we, we, lo- we loved you know this idea of like creating a brand we were just foodies ourselves and we loved business and quite honestly we thought it'd be pretty easy we're like oh how hard could it be to start a restaurant like we're gonna open like a tiny little like salad and bowl shop we found a spot right off campus and we sign a lease and we think we can we're gonna open it in a couple months as we start doing the work writing the business plan we're like whoa first of all this is way harder than we expected to open a restaurant there's a lot more that goes into it but secondly as we started doing the work we realized the opportunity wasn't one restaurant in DC. it was maybe much much bigger than that the opportunity was maybe to create the next the next mcdonald's or the next chipotle in the in the the united states and and then eventually globally we you know we we wrote a business plan we raised money and then you know that right after graduating we opened that very first restaurant and i think even when we opened the first restaurant we weren't sure if that's what we were going to do with our lives Still figuring out if that is, you know, was going to be a project or something we were going to continue to do. And it took a few years. You know, I actually, you know, after opening when you when you're at these schools, they have all these banks and consultant companies come recruiting. My parents were like, you go to Georgetown to get this like good job and go get trained at one of these great institutions. And so you're applying in like September of senior year for the next year. And so I applied to a bunch of jobs and I got what I thought was my dream job. It was a consulting, uh, consulting at Bain. And so I accepted the job. I accepted my like, they give you like a sign on bonus of a few thousand dollars. You're, like super excited. My job was supposed to be in Boston and I was, in, I was supposed to show up November of the following year. So like 14 months later. We go open green in August of that summer. I'm happy we're opening running this restaurant, and then I have to go report to work in Boston. And so I tell my co-founder, I'm like, I guess I have to go do this. Like, I'm gonna, you know, I'll call you every single day. I'll come on the weekends, but I'm gonna go do this job and we'll see what happens. I lasted about six months in the job. <laughs> so I, the job was really hard for me. I think being a consultant was really hard for me not having control and just giving advice. Um, especially having having after having run a business really hard but I did learn a lot in the, from that experience and met some great people I then came back came back to DC as we were opening our second and third restaurant and I think as we opened our second and third restaurant we really started to form what the brand would be and the lifestyle and the mission and the purpose around the brand then we started to realize wow this is something that we can go the distance with that's when we started to really think longer term about about what we were building and I can't believe it's now been 16 years. I've still been doing this to your point. I think I'm, I'm very lucky. I have a lot, you know, a lot of friends that are still figuring out what their purpose is. And I think I'm really lucky that very early on, I found something that I love to do, a mission that I'm very passionate about, which is around health, all while getting to run a business that forces me to learn every single day. And, you know, the thing about the restaurant business is there's so many disciplines. When you run a consumer brand, you know, we have to be great at, brand and marketing we have to be great at food and product we have to be great at real estate design and construction technology is a huge component of what we do both on the software side and now hardware and automation and that piece of the business and of course just like leadership and finance and so it's something that kind of brings together all these disciplines and forces me to continue to learn and it's kept me challenged for 16 years my job gets harder every single year as as the scale compounds but again i'm very lucky that i found what i do and 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 to answer your question uh so sweet green is a uh our mission is to build healthier communities by connecting people to real food and what we are is a farm-to-table restaurant chain so essentially think about it as healthy fast food we have almost 200 locations around the country serving local and organic craveable food at, at affordable prices
1: in the early stages of Sweet Green, uh, you know, you start up, you're one of the co-founders. So how many of you are there? There's three of us. So talk to me about how this dynamic works, speaking founder to founder. <laughs> Your co-founders, there's three of you, you have this idea of we're starting basically a salad bar in Georgetown because we think this is a good idea. You raise some money from friends and family, I assume, etc., like the classic early round. And then you actually leave and go to Bain. And by the way, fun fact, I also went to a very similar type of um, uh, university in the UK called Nottingham, exactly the same feeder schools. You go apply for L'Oreal and McKinsey and Bain and I got rejected from Bain and that was my dream job as well. One up on me there. You lucked out. <laughs> I lucked out. Yeah, a lot of my friends told me that as well. You skipped a step. I know this is 16 years ago of memory, but can you dust off the cobwebs and remember what was it actually like? As a co-founder, going away from a business and then coming back to the business, we've had this from a few guests before, actually, usually in a much more complicated circumstance. Like I came back four years later and the thing was a beast already and it's way more complicated. Was that a difficult conversation to navigate at the time? And like, how did you navigate
0: it? You know, I think I'm very lucky. I've, I have two co-founders that are also my best friends. We have a lot of trust for each other. And in the very early days, that first restaurant was 500 square feet, tiny. It actually couldn't even fit three of us in it. At the time, it was just, you know, the one restaurant. We got it up and running. We had hired teams to run it. And and I think the idea was I was going to go. I was going to learn these skills. I was going to meet a bunch of people to help us raise money in the future. You know I didn't stop working when I left. So I was kind of moonlighting. You know, maybe not the best employee at Bain. So I'm sorry, Bain. You know, we joke that I spent a lot of time hiding in the bathroom on the phone with my founder, you know, on the, on the phone with my co-founders. And my job was really helping to write the business during that time, helping to write the business plan. I was kind of like leading finance and finance and fundraising. And it was writing the business plan for the second and third restaurant and helping to raise the funding. I was also going back and forth, you know, like pretty much every other week back to visit. And then it just got to a point where like I couldn't. You know, I I couldn't do it anymore. And I remember at Bain, there's a few things, a few projects that were like light bulb moments for me. One project was, you know, we were working for a struggling voice over IP company. They were hired and the, the job was how do you reduce churn at this company? So the job was when people try to call to cancel, what do you offer them? Have you ever tried to cancel anything? It's like, it was like our job was to make it harder to cancel To be like, hey, I know you want to quit. I'll give you three extra months free to stay on. And like, how do you just like stop the bleeding? Like first thing I said, and it was like blasphemy. I'm like, maybe the product is bad. Like maybe we should like consult on fixing the product, not just like stopping the bleeding. though. Well, that's not our job. Okay, well, this is stupid. Next job, it was, a, you know, a, it was an insurance company and we, we had, a, you know, we had a, we get the project, we look at it, we go in a room, we know the answer within a day. We're like, we're not going to give them the answer. We're going to kind of like lead them to the answer over the next three years. And I was like, why are we? doing that. Like we have the answer in one day. They're like, well, we don't get paid if we give them the answer in one day. We need to give them, we need to help them get there because, and then what I learned is, you know, and I, I see it's from the other side. Oftentimes the answer is obvious, but sometimes the consultant's job is actually not the answer, but being a change agent inside of the company and getting that buy-in inside. And so there was a lot more that I actually didn't understand at the time, thinking it was as simple as, like, here is the answer to present. You know, for me, I was very conflicted the whole time because I was an entrepreneur. I was already an entrepreneur. You know, I was at nights. I was working on this business and, you know, running back and forth. And I just remember I was, like, trying to decide, do I go back to – do I go back to the business fully? Do I go do something else? If I moved back, it was very conflicted because I, the business was in D.C., my family, and, life. you know, I wanted to be back in Los Angeles. And so there was a lot of questions around do I go, you know, do I go back or not? But I remember actually a very specific – I was in New Jersey at a client site speaking to the partner on the project. His name was Tom. Talking to him about it, you know, and I was very, you know, I was very close with him. And he goes, you know, he's like, listen, my advice to you is, he goes, you have two choices. You have two shots in life. You go now or you wait till after your kids are 18 years old. He goes, I had I had aspirations of being a musician and doing all these things. And I didn't take that shot. And now I'm waiting till I get my kids to kind of the other side where I can take those risks again. And it was this reminder of... You have nothing to lose at that age. And I think there's a reason why so many like out of the park, you know, hit out of the park businesses are created by kids is, you know, I always say you can't fall from the floor. When we were starting Sweetgreen, paying yourself $25,000 a year, it was no different than being in college. You know, it was like, you know, like you're already used to, living a certain way and didn't have any sort of obligations and liabilities and family or just a, a, it's adjusted to some lifestyle. And so it really is in a lot of ways, such a great time to create a business. And then now I imagine like, if I was to go start a business today, it's like, well, I got mortgage payments, I got I got two kids, I got to think about all of that. It just instills a lot of fear and not the art of possibility inside of you. And so I always remember that conversation that I had with that partner that almost like encouraged me. That, like, if you're going to do it, just go do it right now.
1: It's interesting because, you know, I, there is a lot of data out there to suggest that the most successful people in the world, contrary to... Um, what we see in the media, you know, they're, they're the entrepreneurs that start in their forties and fifties, because similar to what you were saying earlier, they're the people that have, um, picked up a lot of various experience in their life. Mm. Um, actually then similar in line with what this guy was thinking, you know, they maybe missed the chance earlier, took the safe route, got paid really well, but have tons of knowledge and expertise and accumulation of wisdom over years that then they finally do start a business and Hey, they do actually smash it because that's just how it goes.
0: Yeah, it's just that in between stage that's really hard. You know, it's like you got to do it when you're 20 or when you're like 40, but it's really hard to do it when you're, you know, in that image. And listen, I think people can start a business any, any time, but so much, it's so much of it is what you realize is the psych, your psychology and your you play such a role in being an entrepreneur. It is an emotional roller coaster.
1: It, it is interesting as well. Like for me, you know, I felt like there's a lot in society that um, glamorizes youth. And, you know, it's like incredibly inspiring to see young people leaving the education system and going and smashing it first time. But like, I personally find the most inspiring stories of entrepreneurship, the guys that start in their 60s or 70s or whatever, that is extremely inspiring totally which is kind of counterintuitive but like i just love it i love the idea that you know there's the story like the most famous one is um the colonel kfc i mean he started that at like 77 or something yeah <laughs> Oh, I, I know
0: that's amazing totally agree And just doing something for a long time as long as you can continue to grow it. You know, there was a long time with Sweet Green when it, you know, when we started that I was very frustrated because I saw the world outside and, you know, the iPhone, you know, we started the same year the iPhone came out. And so it was the beginning of a platform shift that created a lot of exciting businesses. And these, a lot of these people were like peers of mine that were creating these, like, you know, Airbnb and Uber and all these things like being created. And it's like, man, for a long time I was like, I wish. I did one of those things like that seems like super fun, like this, like cool rocket ship software company. And there's something really exciting about that. But then, you know, for me, it's like it can't grow as fast as those. It's a brick and mortars business, but it can compound forever. I have 200 stores and I, you know, I I can grow at 20 ish percent for 50 more years. There's 30,000 plus Starbucks here. We have 200 restaurants. You know, when you think about it, Chipotle has like over, you know, I think 30, almost 3,500 restaurants. So there is value in, you know, I think media and and our culture a lot of times glorifies this like zero, you know, I remember when we, you know, first we, you know, what we came a unicorn, it's like, oh my God, like overnight success. It's like, no, it was like, 12 years in, you know, we went public 15 years in. And so, you know, I think it's like a 15 year overnight success. And I think there's a lot of value in just the resiliency. And even like now, as we go, you know, I think going through some challenging times, um, given the economy and COVID, just reminding myself that you just got to keep going. And that resiliency, if you can just keep going and keep compounding, things usually work out.
1: Talk to me about the journey a little bit. What are some of the tougher memories that you've got?
0: I mean, so many challenges. It's been 16 years. Um, You know, from the very beginning, you know, challenges of survival, you know, first winter, remember, not being almost not being able to make payroll. I mean, cash constraint was always a huge question for us in the early years. It was six years in that we got our first VC funding. So it was very kind of bootstrapped until that point.
1: And how much did you raise in that round?
0: 20 million, 22 million, I
1: think. What did it feel like to suddenly be like, oh, we can actually do some of the things we said we'd do next year?
0: That was very exciting because it was, you know, we would you know, it was six years, we'd opened 20 restaurants. We'd finally gone from a regional player in just DC to New York and Boston. And I think the brand had finally kind of like unlocked. We had created this festival and it was just like, okay, now we get a seat at the table. You know, now we get, now we have a shot at, going to that next stage. And it's actually very similar to how I feel today, right? You know, we're still tiny in the scheme of things, 200 restaurants, if you compare us to, to, to now the players we were we think we're competing against. But we got a shot. We went public. We have a nice you know, we have a we have balance sheet. We have a brand, we have a team, but we got a long hill to climb here. I'd say the biggest challenge in the business, one was about six years ago, the company was doing well, but there was a a lot of disagreement in terms of the, with the management team internally around the direction of the business. You know, they had some people internally, we brought on some senior leaders here that wanted to build a more traditional type of restaurant company, wanted to, you know, probably work it towards an exit and didn't have the aspirations of going, going the distance um, as the co-founders did. And so there was a very hard moment where we had to reset the direction of the company, the vision of the company, and also the team. And overnight, pretty much the whole executive team left. And the three of us were kind of left holding the bag here, and it was a very, I mean, really, I mean, at that point, we were almost running out of, you know, almost running out of money again. Had to, you know, had to go kind of reset the vision, reset the business, and and go go raise money to fund this new vision of a more tech-enabled company that saw tech being a huge, huge opportunity in in the in the future restaurant business. Which we were right in, in many ways. The second um, has been the past three years. You know, Sweet green, our footprint was very heavily urban, very heavily catering towards offices and people going to work. And COVID hit and our sales got hit by almost 90 percent, like overnight. Whatever you were doing, it was, just like, it was just gone. New York is empty. It was our biggest market. Everyone going, you know, it all just went away. First, you thought it was going to come back in you know, a few months or a year or maybe two years. Well, now we're three years in and there's no end in sight to the, you know, to the to what COVID has done to the world. In the U.S., office is only at 47% back to pre-COVID levels. Our stores, four years later, are still not at the... Le- the, the stores we had then are still doing significantly less than they were doing before COVID. So There's been four years of, like, fighting and repositioning the company and moving out into suburbs and changing the menu and doing all of these things just to, like, fight to stay alive. We've navigated well. We were able to go public during that time. Um, we were able to really shift our footprint to be more suburban and and continue to you know continue to grow. But it's been you know quite you know definitely challenging because it's been it's it's been really hard.
1: You mentioned technology being a massive part of your business. So like how like how how has that played into the business? Right? Because on the surface, just a restaurant business, right? But actually, I know. Um, from spending some time in the States actually getting your app, like everything I know actually, it's not just lip service, it's a real thing. So for the untrained eye, can you explain to us what that's all about?
0: It's actually interesting how technology was such a big part of our business, will always be, but how that's shifted from a strategic focus. So, you know, we started as a food company, at the core we're a brand. You know, as the iPhone came out and the world, you know, the platform shift happened, we saw a huge opportunity to change the experience by leveraging technology. And we were one of the first movers in... Designing, you know, having a mobile app that you can order food on, redesigning our restaurants to be made for a digital world, thinking about things like loyalty and delivery and, you know, machine learning and all those things that I think a lot of e-com was doing, but just hadn't been applied yet to food. In a lot of ways, we paid a lot of pioneer tax because there weren't there was no Shopify for our industry. So we had to build everything ourselves. We had, you know, we had a huge engineering team. We were building our all of these tools, both front of house and, you know, consumer apps and back of house apps. Uh, to manage our business, um, and and to really elevate the customer experience and improve the profitability of our restaurants. We had a huge lead going into COVID. But what's interesting is once COVID hit, um, the whole world kind of caught up. So this huge strategic advantage we had around digital penetration we we had over 50% of our orders coming through our app before COVID. COVID comes and the whole world kind of moves there. And so technology is still very important, but in a lot of ways, the, the playing field has been leveled. And I think a good analogous industry is if you look at streaming, if you think about the streaming wars, it was like Netflix was very special for a long time because it had the best streaming platform. The first to market, they had to build it. They had to, like that really mattered that they had a great streaming platform with personalization all the things they had. Today, I don't know anyone who uses Netflix because they have a great streaming platform it might be better than the hbo streaming platform but i don't think you're like oh i want to i want to go watch netflix because i like their streaming platform you like the shows on hbo or netflix and that's what's going to drive you to do it so ultimately that you know the content is king at the end of the day um, as you know the, the technology can be a wedge but then it kind of you know that goes away and content becomes king our bi- our business is kind of very similar for a while it was this huge wedge it was a competitive advantage We had an app, nobody else had an app. We had delivery on our app, other people didn't. Now it's like kind of, we're a little bit better than everyone else. You know, I think we do things a lot, you know, it's a better experience. But at the end of the day, like everyone kind of offers a lot of the, you know, these things from a technology perspective and it's been commoditized. Now it's back to content is king. I want to eat sweet green because the food is better and because I love the brand more. And so now we still have to be good at the technology, but it's back to the brand and the food as the driver of growth. Um, technology is shift continuing to shift. I think AI is going to create a huge opportunity around, you know, there's some platform shifts about how we do things, but I think that's also not, that's going to be kind of how we work. And I think it's going to be everyone's, it's just going to change everyone's job. But the big technology shift that we're investing in right now is around automation. You know, we, we have a very labor intensive business that we make our food from scratch. We customize our, you know, our bowls are very heavily customized, you know, we very high throughput uh, in our restaurants. And so, Uh, We've been investing in in automation for the past few years and very soon we're going to be opening our first automated restaurants, which we think will elevate the customer experience, perfect consistency, perfect portioning, faster speed, um, better food quality, um, and hopefully allow us to create a better business model that eventually gives us the ability to to impact our pricing to, 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 to change the addressable market that we serve. But again, with that, I'm not naive in thinking that automation, you know, eventually, I don't know when, is it two years, five years, 10 years, everyone will have that as well. We will have a lead in that and it will go back to the brand. At the end of the day, it will be the brand and the food that matter most.
1: So I guess the obvious question that comes next is the future for your family, for your kids, the world that they grow up in. Are they going to be uh, going to restaurants and everything's fully automated, robotics, no human beings, etc.? Like, how does your industry change in light of the AI and robotic revolution that's coming?
0: You know, I think uh, I think a lot about this, especially as we're about to open our first automated restaurant. Right, you're right at the forefront. Yeah, there's a lot of things that will change, and there's a, and there's certain things that won't. And we think there's a way to just use automation and, and AI to, to actually improve the team member and the customer experience and make it feel more human, not less. The the part that we are automating very intentionally is the assembly. It's that repetitive task of putting the ingredients inside of the bowl. That is something that is it's highly repetitive task that actually when humans do it, it's it's very hard for them to do it consistently fast and consistently accurate there's things that the machine cannot do that we will actually now that we're able to automate this part we can elevate the other pieces and those are for us our scratch cooking and and hospitality so the machines cannot cook food they cannot prepare the actual food and make it taste delicious that's what makes the food delicious is that we buy food from these great sources and then we make it from hand we make it by hand every single day so when you go into a restaurant there's still going to be a lot of people you're going to see people they are making the food, washing, chopping, roasting, seasoning the food, loading a machine that ma- does a lot of it, but then there's a b- parts of it that it can't do. For example, putting on the avocado or some of the herbs, seasoning it at the end, and then handing it to the consumer. And what we're, the way we're designing this new restaurant is with a lot more focus on hospitality. So instead of walking into a restaurant kind of being rushed down this assembly line, how can we give you actually a higher end, almost like concierge-like experience where you go talk to someone? that now has the time to talk to you is not rushed. Can we can we have to train less people. We can train them to actually understand where the food comes from, what and and have that kind of like high-end conversation directly with someone on the team. You can you still, so you're still ordering in a human way, it's still being made in a human way. And then that middle process is automated. It's a balancing act of how do you how do you actually you know elevate the experience, even though you're automating parts of it. But there's maybe some things that humans don't need to do.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really interesting reflection. That's actually really interesting framing. I won't be surprised if that makes a massive, massive impact. And that's, you know, that is ultimately the fascinating challenge of our times, right? It's like, if human beings are to be released from their boring jobs, the boring repetitive jobs, cool, how do we still keep them in the value chain so that what they're doing is interesting and valuable and makes them happier and makes their customers happier too? This is the big important challenge of our time as parents.
0: Yeah, I heard Sam uh, Altman speak. I've listened to a lot of his podcasts recently. I'm just fascinated about how, how quickly, you know, ChatGPT and say, AI yeah, is going to change things. And I love the way he talks about it as an amplifier. And that's, you know, I, I introduced, you know, we introduced these tools inside of our company recently. And there's some people that got really nervous or like, oh, my God, you're trying to replace my job. I'm like, I'm not trying to replace your job. I'm trying to put you higher in that value chain and amplify what you do. Mm. And I believe technology at its best can do that. Um, But I think that you have to navigate it very thoughtfully in order in in order to achieve it.
1: I agree. We're doing something internally at Heights, my company, um, where we're talking about the AI tools and we're talking about all all the things that you can do. However, um, what we're really doing is focusing on training around critical thinking, because actually really occurred to us that you these tools can make you the most efficient person ever at doing the wrong thing or (laughs) not moving the needle on anything that matters. And we had a couple of examples in the first couple of weeks of like, look at all this amazing stuff we did. We're like, yeah, but what difference does that make to the business if you really think about it? So actually it's okay, let's take a step back. They can make you really efficient, but that doesn't make you effective. Critical thinking makes you effective and understanding how the prompts are gonna impact your role and how you can 10X, that's the person that gets the job promotion. That's the person who can show they can use AI As a human being, to make themselves so much more effective at the company and just being efficient will take you down the wrong path, quite possibly, and actually put yourself out of the job because you'll show that you don't really understand how to do the critical thinking part. And that's the human part that AI doesn't need to replace. That's the bit that actually makes a good employee and adds value to the company.
0: I I totally agree. I have this talk again. I give my company versus efficiency versus effectiveness. And it's come up a lot on on our return to work. I'm a big proponent of working in person. Quite honestly, it's and it's a little bit controversial, but I I just I think it's more fun, it's more human, and it's much more effective. And a lot of people are like, "Well, I'm wasting you know two hours a day commuting, and I I, I could be more productive at home." And you can be more efficient and productive at home, but I don't know if it's more effective. And I think I think how we solve problems together, collaborate and infuse creativity and in soul, especially as a brand. That is how we are effective. You ever had the experience where everybody does their job, but the job that needed to get done didn't get done? It's like, how did this happen, that everybody here hit their individual goals and did a great job, but the company didn't win?
1: Yeah. And I actually think, you know, this is going to be one of the really interesting leadership challenges of our time. AI systems and connectivity around the world, like that stuff is all interconnected. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be moving towards more effective outcomes whatsoever. And I think these these are super important questions that constantly need to be asked. Okay. Wrapping up because it's time. I'd love to know what is your top piece of advice for people that want to go on a long, steady, compounding career of building a brand like you've done?
0: Find something, you know, it's probably a cliche, but find something that, that you love to do because it's really hard being an entrepreneur and there's days that everybody wants to call it quits. You know, I always say it's like, I don't think I'm smarter than the next person. I'll just keep going. You know, and if you take enough shots on goal, Eventually, you're going to get lucky, and so in order to do that, you need, I think, to figure, find something that you love, people that you love to do it with, because that is your experience every day. Is the relationships and that you, you know that is what creates the culture, and the joy comes from the people that you interact with and do it with, and even in hard times, make sure you can have fun and laugh. And then I think it's also about taking care of yourself. You know, I've, I've noticed with myself, the more I'm able to take care of myself, the better I can show up for others and as a leader i think we oftentimes just sacrifice constantly and i'm I'm guilty of it you know you just work work through it work through it work through it and back to that like efficient versus effective the times where i'm most effective is sometimes those times where i step away fill my bucket fill my cup and then come back and i feel this with my family and i feel this at work where like for me like surfing is one of the things that just fills my cup it you know sometimes can be viewed as this like selfish thing where i'm going surfing but like When I come back from surfing, I'm a better husband, I'm a better dad, I'm a better leader. And so making sure that like you could, you know, in order to go the distance, you gotta find a rhythm where you take care of yourself so you can take care of others because leadership really is about taking care of other people.
1: I love that. And turning up every day is not the same as 24-7 hustle because that's the thing that causes burnout and is going to stop you turning up for weeks.
0: Yeah, I felt it a lot very acutely recently. I had a, My baby girl was born in the des- first week in December. And so the last few months of pregnancy, we didn't try we didn't do anything. The work was very intense. Like I think it was from like August through two weeks ago, you know, through almost like the first, you know, early March, I hadn't taken like a day off. And I was, just, I just got to this point where I was like, so burnt out, so burnt out. Like, can I do this anymore? Like, can I keep pushing, keep pushing forward? And it was just not my best self. I went on a boy's trip skiing for two days. I came back so energized. And I'm like, all right, I can do this forever.
1: I think expertise is not about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. It's actually about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice and 20,000 hours of rest. Dude, it was a massive pleasure talking to you on Secret Leaders. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was
1: Jonathan Neiman from Sweet Green. Who knew there was such a crossover between salad and AI and parenting? I can't wait to try robot food. Don't know about you.
0: Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do.
1: Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks.
0: Told by leading names in sport and beyond.
1: You know what it takes to get to the very top.
0: There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow.
1: Search for "Mindset Win" on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollman. See you next time.